this week on a lively experiment. A full week of developments in the race for the first congressional district. We'll bring you up to speed. And what effect will a new taxpayer-funded tuition program have on sagging enrollment at Rhode Island College? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with their insight, attorney and former mayor of Providence, Angel Tavares. Raymond Bakari, former editor of the Anchor newspaper at Rhode Island College. And Republican strategist, Lisa Pelosi. Hello and welcome to this week's Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. With a little over a month to go until primary day, many of the candidates for the CD1 race will be squaring off in a series of debates in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, in the wake of the signature scandals, scandal surrounding Sabina Matos's campaign, the State Board of Elections and the Secretary of State would like to see some changes to the elections process. So, Lisa, hopefully we'll get some substance in these debates over the coming weeks, but it's really the process now that I think a lot has been overshadowing a lot of this. So you know, far. as this has been unfolding over the past few weeks, I've been thinking, is any good, any publicity good publicity? Because we've been talking for weeks um, that there hasn't been any activity in this race. And then look at the activity that we're talking about right now. It's under the category of a scandal. So there's been a lot of talk about process, but you're right. It's really time to start focusing on the issues because we have early voting, I think, starting next week mm -hmm. for, for people in, in the first district. So th the need to learn more about where these candidate stands are on issues is really important. Yeah, and to, to go on that, there are a number of forums that either have happened or are about to happen in a couple of debates. I had the privilege of doing one of the first forums. I did it virtually with a good friend of mine, Ryan Lukowicz, who's a rising senior at North Kingston High School. We had all 12 candidates, six and six, and two sessions on the Zoom call because we wanted to keep you know the bandwidth you know as, as much as possible. You don't want to blow up your internet. Yep, and then there's a couple happening. Uh, later on today, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's happening by the time this is uh, airing, but the Rhode Island Black Business Association and BLM MRI Packer doing a debate. Next week's a radio debate on WPRO uh, hosted by Bill Bartholomew. And then two debates are happening at uh, my home, um, where I am. Your Rhode hometown. Island I, I, your I almost said home <laughs> My uh, home turf, sure. Um, Rhode Island College, WPRI, and then the Public Radio and um, Providence Journal. So it's always good to see more debates happening. We'll get to the debate shortly. You know, you've done work for the Secretary of State's office, so you're and, and you've been a candidate. I wonder as you look at this unfold, the Secretary of State says we need to move the primary, so that's a whole other issue. But the way the Board of Elections has handled this, it, I know they were under a tight timetable, but some people have said maybe they could have been a little bit more stringent in looking at the signatures. Well, I, I think that the uh, the board has experience certainly looking at signatures. Last year, uh, they looked at signatures to determine who would go on the ballot um, for governor. There were some candidates who didn't have enough signatures, and they tasked their staff with some work, and they also uh, reviewed any signatures that were in dispute. I was away during this whole period this year, so I don't know everything that happened during that time period. I've just read coverage of it. So You but, don't believe what you read in the paper, do you? Uh, only half of it. So, but, uh, but no, I, I think I think, look, um, this race is, um, has been relatively quiet so far, and I think one of the challenges that candidates have is to distinguish themselves. 
certainly this is not the way that the lieutenant governor wanted to uh, stand out. Um, but but you have to distinguish yourself. So these debates are important, but you touched on something earlier. The way that the voting is done now, where you have early voting, uh, we have a lot of people voting by mail, um, you really need to distinguish yourself even earlier because I've already ordered my mail ballot, haven't received it yet, but I've ordered it and I'll be voting by mail, um, and you have early voting going on. So you really need to try to um, distinguish yourself early on. And in this race, it seems like the candidates, for the most part, their positions are very, very similar. What about moving the primary? I mean, we've had this. It seems like we've been talking about this forever. If you move it to the spring, the incumbents in the General Assembly don't like that because as your your, uh, opponent is out knocking on doors, you're sitting in a hot chamber. And, but if you move it to August or July, then are people paying attention? I, I know. know. So I was trying to you know, work backwards, too. So if you wanted to move it two weeks earlier, then we're looking at mid-August, and still people aren't you know, checking in. They're still enjoying the summer right now. So then you keep moving it back to July, and then you have the declaration of, you know, so all the deadlines are predicated on each other, right, you know, to do that. Right, and to widen that out a little bit between the time you have to file and the signature verification, that was the problem, right? Yeah, but I'm thinking, you know, we're one of 50 states. There are other states that are going to do this. You know, why do we seem to have this problem in Rhode Island and can't get it solved? And luckily, uh, if there's going to be any positives out of this whole uh, story, um, the legislation that Secretary Moray is going to introduce next session not only will um, widen the time frame, time frame, but there's also going to be an automatic review process kicked in if any of the city or towns suspect fraud or um, any, yes, yeah, suspect any fraud with signatures. I also wonder, you know, we talked about the substance as we get into the debates. I haven't heard anybody ask, do you support the, the war in Ukraine? Or what if China invades Taiwan? I mean, those are issues. Did we, they, co- we did did they come up? We did cover a little bit of international in our, in our forum that Ryan and I did. We t- asked them their stances on the, the United States' decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine. We did want to talk about Taiwan and China, that, the, the, that whole story, but we just didn't have enough time. And did you see in that forum, and not everybody's seen it, Raymond's posted it online, did you see anybody stand out as different? Or what Angel's talking about is there, there's very... Um, small degrees of separation in terms of policy. Yeah, nobody necessarily bombed in either session of the forum, but you could tell at least the ideological differences somewhat. So, for example, you had in session one, the more conservative, moderate Democrats were Alan Waters and Rep. Stephen Casey, while a lot of the other candidates, like uh, like the mayor was saying, kind of lean similarly in terms of policy goals. And then in session two, it was a little more lopsided, where the only more moderate conservative Democrat was uh, former Rep. Spencer Dickinson. So there wasn't really much difference, but you can kind of tell when you heard the answers just a tiny bit. How much do the endorsements make a difference now, particularly the union endorsements? Well, it depends. And what I mean by that is if it comes with uh, knocking on doors and getting the vote out and money behind it, it means a lot. Uh, especially in a race that is expected to be a low turnout election. Um, the more you can get your vote out, the better off you are. So endorsements that uh, actually come with something, come with money, come with people, uh, boots on the ground, as they say, and, and knocking doors, um, that, that means a lot. So, How many votes do you think could win this? 10, 15,000 maybe? It, it could. Uh, look, uh, there's an estimate that I've seen out there about 40,000 uh, likely uh, voters in this primary, which would be lower than a typical election, which is probably be about 60,000. And if you look at 40,000, uh, 10, 15,000 votes is uh, 25 to, you know, 30 percent. 
And of course, it's only half the state. So exactly. So, so I mean, you know, we, we don't know. It, it depends on what the turnout is, but it's not going to be a typical election, I don't believe. And so, uh, I think a lot of reasons. One of the reasons that a lot of candidates stayed in is because they've said, "Hey, there's so many candidates. You don't need as many votes, and I've got my base, and I think I can get them out, and I think I can make a difference. I can get enough from other places um, to make the difference and win." In these debates, Lisa, what do you want to hear from the candidates? Now, I know you're on the Republican side, and eventually one of your candidates will, will they'll square off after primary day. But, I mean, I think a lot of people in a heavily Democratic district think the rubber's going to meet the road on this in the next month. What do you want to hear from the candidates? Well, you know what's been interesting watching the commercials? It's almost like all the candidates who are on the air have the same talking points. Because when you watch it, it's like, I want to bring my voice to, to Washington and fight the MAGA Republicans. And if you just line up the commercials one after another, they're saying the same thing. So I want to hear a little bit more about what you were saying more on the national level. This is not a general office. This is not a municipal office. This is representing the state of Rhode Island, you know, in Washington, D.C. So I do want to hear about Ukraine. I want to hear about China. I want to hear more about, you know, solving our deficit and, you know, building the economy. So those are the issues I want to be hearing. And what I think is really interesting, and no disrespect to the, your podcast or, or whatever, those two tele televised um, debates at the end of the month, I think, will be really important to see how the candidates handle themselves on television in that, you know, raw setting to do that. So for all the people who are doing early voting, I'm always asking, can you wait until you see these debates? Because they really could change the race. Lisa makes a good point the MAGA Republican line, is that consultants telling them to do that? Without a doubt. I mean, that's, you know, you look at, you, uh, you can do a poll and see what are the issues that a lot of Democrats care about. And, and uh, a lot of folks have done polling in this race and they get, come back with the same issues. Uh, the messaging is similar. It's a Democratic primary, right? So it's not a general election. So you focus on the Democratic primary and what, what's going to motivate folks to get out there to vote. Um, so I think there's no doubt that consultants are doing that. I think what Lisa points out in terms of the debates is true. I, I saw that in my very first race over 20 years ago, uh, the difference that the debates made. But it was a very different time because yeah. most of the voting was done at the poll. You know, if you look at the governor's primary, there was a lot of early vote and there was uh, a lot of mail ballots. So, um, you know, she, she implored people to wait. I think that's going to be the question. Do are people waiting or who's casting early votes and who's um, uh, mailing in their mail ballots already? So uh, it's going to be very interesting. And I, you know, I've seen candidates implode on TV, you know, and I, I remember a show, a lively experiment having a candidate come on and she was so awful. She pulled out of the race the next day, you know, <laughs> so, so it couldn't happen. So, so far it's been very controlled. Their websites have been controlled and messaging on the commercials have been con controlled. But when you're going back and forth in the debate, anything can happen. And yeah. it really, it really can change the race. It, it can, but one thing I would say, because you have so many candidates, right. I think that that is going to be uh, there's you probably could take a lower a little risk. Cover, right? Yeah, there's going to be a lower risk because even with if you're if you got 12, I think you have 12, right? Um, I don't know how they're going to do the debates, whether they do them all together or how they're going to separate them out. But um, there's just so little time for you to speak, actually, yeah. when you really think about it. And so some it of be it depends on the format because Absolutely. it would be great. And now I know with yours, you didn't want to get it. It's tough virtually too it really is. to be able to get into a back and forth that lends itself if you have maybe two two candidates or two or three candidates but I mean you know somebody's going to come in from left field over here so I don't know how they're going to work that you have any advice for the moderators um, <laughs> I would say I mean you know the two sessions approach isn't a bad idea and the way that Ryan and I did it we randomized it as much as possible and actually funny enough it was pretty even you know with the perceived front runners you had Reaganberg in one session and Lieutenant Governor Matos in another then you had Senator Quezada in this session and then Senator Cano in that session so I mean personally I would I, I like this 
splitting up into two approach that day when they did the two debates at Rick. Maybe you know one, you have one hour where you do the six candidates and another hour where you do another six. Or I mean, I guess the stricter criteria will narrow it down. But um, one thing I really do want to see other debates is the candidates challenging each other so we can really see the differences in policy, uh, not only policy goals, but how they'll implement those goals. And just to emphasize, I was just thinking about something that Lisa said, and, and which is true. I mean, look, even with a big, uh, going back on what I said, even with a big group, I mean, what uh, Chris Christie did to Marco Rubio in New Hampshire, yeah. um, basically, I think, uh, you know, ended. even though Mar Marco Rubio doesn't like to say it, it ended, yeah. <laughs> it ended his campaign, and that was a big group. I don't know that we have a Chris Christie type, and I'm yeah. sure that the Democrats would say, that's right, you know, we don't have no Chris Christie type, but I'll, it makes a difference. And I'll build on that, too. If you remember last year during the gubernatorial debate, there was, uh, in April, there was a forum that RIPAC hosted, and that was Ashley Kales's first kind of foray, you know, being before a group, and when she was asked who she looked for, you know, to for governor, and she said Ron DeSantis. That haunted her. Who was your political the hero? hero? So that was her. You know, she said. And it wasn't Abraham Lincoln. It wasn't some historical figure. It was Ron DeSantis. And it haunted her through the whole campaign. So you yeah. never know that one sentence that can come out that can do that. Okay, the uh, Cranston Street Armory. We didn't get to talk about this a lot last week, but uh, of course, the overshadowing issue was the big Philadelphia fiasco. But now, what to do with the armory? Something we've been talking about for decades and decades. Uh, Angel, I want to talk with you because probably not a surprise that uh, your successor, one of your successors, uh, Brett Smiley, has said, "Yeah, we'd be happy to take it on, but we need a little bit of the do re mi with it." Let's go back historically. What what was going on? with the Cranston Street Armory when you were mayor? Well, uh, we're going back now over eight years um, since I left the Seems office. Seems like a lifetime but ago. What I, what I will say this is, one, I agree with Mayor Smiley on, on the issue. If you're going to take it back, they definitely need support. And the state's in a better position to provide that support because their resources are a lot bigger than the city of Providence. Two, I'd say the West Broadway Neighborhood Association is outstanding. Carrie Lang ran, ran it while I was there, and I remember... Uh, having to close schools, and the West Broadway Neighborhood Association was the only group that came not only to oppose it, but with proposed solutions. Um, and so I would urge them to incorporate and to work with the West Broadway Neighborhood Association. They've done an outstanding job over in the neighborhood, um, and I think they're just a model um, for neighborhood associations. Uh, it's a beautiful building that there is very, it's very unique. Uh, the question is money, as, as, as so many different things, right? Money, just the, just the maintenance of it, right? Uh, is talk, we're talking about millions of dollars. Um, to keep it empty, which is amazing uh, when you think about it. So the issue comes down to money. Now, we're in a different time. There's infrastructure funding. There's uh, housing funding. There's a lot of different opportunities that we have now. Uh, the city is on, on better, you know, not, not great, but better financial footing. The state's a little bit better financial footing. Uh, but, you know, the federal money is going to dry up at some point. So we've got to keep that in mind Did as you well. brainstorm any potential uses? I mean, there's been, it's been across the board in terms of what people have I'm talked I'm sure about. that we did because it's always been a big issue. But we were at that point really focusing on keeping the city afloat. Exactly. So that was our focus. <laughs> Not a lot of extra money. So um, I was working for Governor Ahmed when it shut down in the 90s. And I can't remember the exact time, but I think it was a couple years later. I remember hosting Michael Carrenti, the filmmaker. Right. So he wanted to you know, go in and do it as a film student. Obviously, that didn't work. You know? So the way I'm looking at this is the state's going to be paying money to maintain it. Can it work out that it transfers to the you know, city of Providence and that money that would have been going to maintain it, at least you know, up to $3 million? A little bit of a funding stream. You know, at least to start with that and then to see. But also, I was looking at who was the director of administration when the contract was signed um, uh, with Scout? 
it was Brett Smiley. Wow. Right. So and so now that he's mayor, you know, so he he has a, that initial perspective of why the state entered the agreement to begin with. And now, to, you know, now, of course, that scout's not part of this anymore. But he, you know, looking at uses of it. So, you know, it's a curious way. I don't think it's been he's been asked about his thoughts about, you know, beyond turning it over to the city of Providence. If it does go to the city, I do think the state should provide funding. Uh, as the mayor was saying, it is going to cost a couple million a year to just maintain it with all the structural and plumbing problems. The number, I believe, was two million to three and a half million a year. But yeah, I mean, folks in Providence just had a tax increase. I don't think they should pick on an extra burden, especially when the money, if if Providence had to pay for that, use that money. I mean, that money could go to something else, like fixing a road that it actually needs to be done. So I think the state should provide the funding. They shouldn't just drop it off at the doorstep and say no take backs. <laughs> the line that the line that struck me was that the mayor said we don't want to absorb all the deferred maintenance and there's been a lot of it over the years so sometimes free is not always always free what what does your gut say do you think something's going to get worked out or you think it's gonna I know you're not in the middle of it but it, it is such an I we talked about this last week it's an iconic building but we had two panelists say it's not that iconic that you just couldn't knock it down I know some people's hair would go on fire but if it's a lot of money to fix yeah, well, I think it would be a, a huge mistake to knock it down. The reason is because what part of what makes Providence really unique and, and better than some of our other cities is the historic architecture that we have, uh, whether it be uh, PPAC or Trinity or um, the Biltmore, I guess it's a graduate now. Um, and I think that that is another beautiful, iconic building that makes us unique. And I think what's going to happen, I do think that the state, I hope, I don't have any inside knowledge, my hope, okay, my hope is that the state will step up and support um, the city of Providence and give it back to Providence with uh, money to do that. Um, and I think Mayor Smiley uh, will bring people together in a way that um, to get something done on it. We have an opportunity now, I think, that hasn't existed for a while, and that is that there are some resources I think you can bring to bear on it. Okay. Uh, late in the General Assembly session, uh, actually kind of unexpectedly, the legislature at the last minute added in money for what is now called the HOPE Scholarship. You know about the Promise Scholarship, which you talked about for years, taxpayer-funded tuition at CCRI. Now that extends to the last two years at Rhode Island College. So, of course, having our resident Rhode Island College expert, Raymond, you, you were all over this in the yep. spring. I remember you questioning Dr. Warner and uh, Governor McKee, and it made it. So set the table about what this does and more importantly maybe what it doesn't do. Absolutely. So this is one of two big legislative wins that came out of that session for Rhode Island College. It's going to act as a last dollar scholarship, so if students have exhausted all of their other financial aid resources like the Pell Grants and whatnot, this is that last dollar scholarship. So basically you can get a bachelor's degree for $22,000, only half the price. And I think one thing that this is really going to do is help Rhode Island College's enrollment and retention, which has suffered ever since the Rhode Island Promise. Rhode Island Promise and COVID. So first, you have to go the first two years and pay your own, and then it's the last two years. So you put some skin in the game before you get there. Yeah, it, you have to enroll in Rick as a freshman, 60 credits, to uh, have 60 credits completed by that time, 2.5 GPA, complete the FAFSA, the whole nine yards. But it really is worth it. And Rick's already the most affordable four-year school out of the whole state. So I think it's a worthy investment, and especially when you consider it's creating that revolving door of the next generations of teachers, nurses, uh, just, you know, all the that Rick is known for creating uh, folks to take step in. We've talked philosophically for years about taxpayer-funded tuition. And I think I've said this before, so I'll do it again. I'm not in favor of... <laughs> no offense, Raymond. <laughs> no, <laughs> no uh, one, because it's not means-tested. So, for again, if I'm coming from wealth, 
and I go to Rhode Island College, and Raymond's not, so he has all of his you know, scholarships covered up to that last dollar, maybe $1,000 taxpayers pay. I don't get any scholarships, I don't qualify, but I can get my last two years free. So my $10,000 comes from the state of Rhode Island, you know, and I could afford to do it. So that's one concern. The second concern is, unfortunately, the Rhode Island College has a very low graduation rate. So for four years, 21% of the students graduate. Over six years, it's 44%. So I don't know how much this is really going to bump up the graduation rate. And the third thing of concern is this is taxpayers' money. In the bill, it says that the graduates should stay in Rhode Island, but there's no enforcement. So it could be you get your free tuition, and then you go and you work in Massachusetts. Well, a large, full, a large percentage of Rhode Island college students already live in Rhode Island, and typically they stay in Rhode Island. I know a lot of alumni who have done great things, some of them even in government, some of them in the private sector. But also, 47% of Rick students already have a Pell Grant, so they're already getting financial aid, so it's not going to be as much. And it was a small chunk of the budget, not to mention, uh, I think the stat I read from Channel 10's reporting on this was 10% of students are dropping out in between the sophomore, junior years, and the reason is financial reasons. So why have those students not that be able to get their bachelor's the degree? The, the dropout rate. Yeah, yeah, but then the, the other thing, too, is you can go to CCRI for two years for free, and then you can transfer to Rhode Island College. Can you do that? Can you get the so promise? You, but, and the no, home? you can't no, get both. Can't, can't get but both. but still, when you look at four years of school, oh, then it would pick up the first two, rather right? Than, you know, yeah, to do the that. Last two. Angel? No, listen, I think that the, whatever we can do to help more students complete college and make their uh, road a little bit easier is a good thing. Um, the dropout rate that you cited, I have no doubt that some of that is due to financial uh, issues. I remember my, my biggest concern was not getting my grades back uh, in college, it was getting my financial aid award yeah. each year. That was my big concern, um, was making sure that I could pay for it. So um, I'm glad we're making it a little bit easier. And I actually... Uh, think that uh, the, the next step really is URI and figuring out a way. Do you way. think that's coming? I, I hope so because I think that we have to, you know, <laughs> Rhode Island is so uh, so small yet we have all these di different like little kingdoms, right? And and I think URI and Rhode Island College have to find ways to work together. Um, and I think that uh, helping Rhode Island College increase their enrollment is a great thing, but I don't want that to hurt URI either. I mean, Rhode Island College is essential to Rhode Island's economy. It's the most affordable four-year school. I'm going there because it was the most affordable option for me. My plan B would have been the two years at CCRI. But you have to look at it like this, especially I'm going to give the student perspective, so some of this might be a little bit insider, you know this. The student life suffers and so do the you know the layoffs and all the other problems as enrollment goes down because you don't have money coming in so it's kind of creating this revolving door of more and more issues for rick which would then hurt us hurt the state as a whole rick provides those next generations of teachers and and nurses and a lot of other professions that are important to the economy yeah and in this case we should know the governor uh, uh allocated or asked for nine million dollars you said the figure was four right yeah I, but it's going to come what, in the, the channel 10 article that i did read said four million and you've proven even more my point it's not that much out of the budget the budget what 14 billion now right uh, yeah, 14 billion <laughs> still rings around in my head all right let's do this uh, i do want to talk a little bit about the president's third indictment uh let's do outrageous and or kudos first lisa what do you have this week uh, it has to be the Board of Elections. This has been just such an outrage to see their really, you know, derelict of duty. You know, when we look to see who should be the, you know, the entity really um, verifying signatures, it really falls on the Board of Elections, and they just said this. So, and when I look at the Board of Elections, and you look who's appointed, the appointees have been appointed by Governor Raimondo and Governor McKee. There are no Republicans on this. So we have 
an issue with the Democrat Secretary of State saying it's not me, the Attorney General Democrat saying, you know, not me, the Board of Elections that has been appointed and are Democrats. It just makes me think more that this is another way we're being harmed as a state, that we don't have a good two-party system right now. Okay, get on that. <laughs> that your time, your time in the trenches is past, right? <laughs> oh, and the other thing with the Board of Elections, it's one of the very few boards and commissions that the people who serve get paid. Right, right. Angel, my outrage are uh, national Republicans. Uh, we have a president who was just indicted for the third time, um, and you don't hear any outrage from most Republicans. And this indictment, whatever you want to think of the first two, this one is even more serious, right? And 45-page uh, uh, indictment, very detailed. And don't come and tell me, oh, well, you know, I like his policies, oh, well, I like this. You know what? I like most of uh, Governor Cuomo's policies, and I'm glad he's not governor of New York, and he shouldn't be governor of New York. And I'm glad that he resigned. Um, and we do not see that now. And I understand partly why, and that's because they are putting their self-interest, their interest in being reelected above the interests of the country. That's an outrage, and it's wrong. All right. Rim? I'll change things up with a kudo. I had an outrage a couple of last time, so I want to make things a little more positive. Just the fact that we're having all these forums and debates happening, and with two at Rick, I have to plug that a little bit. But yeah, just all these forums and debates happening, because folks in CD1 need to know three things about the 12 candidates, who they are, what they stand for, and how will they get the stuff done when they get in Congress. Great. Let's go back to the national. Um, I think if you read that indictment, and I would say the 74% of Republicans who are saying that they don't think that it's, you know, it's more political, whatever, maybe have not read the indictment. It's a lot of this. But I wonder the initial bump that Donald Trump is getting now, where that's going to be in six months. As people really do focus if this case comes to trial, again, Fox News is all over, oh, he's getting, you know, the, the more indictments and that's better. But whether America's tired of it, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, of course, we didn't get to see him because they couldn't have, you know, the cameras in the courthouse. But what struck me was he didn't have to go. He could have been, this could have been done virtually, but he decided to go. So he's seen the value of going there and coming back and using it to rally his troops. So all he's been doing is really boostering the support that he has among his, his supporters. So it's almost counterintuitive the way this whole thing has been going through. So um, we're not seeing any other Republican really breaking through to challenge him. And he seems to be the one right now that the, I know I'm a Republican and I'm not behind him. So I'm not one of the ones that you're talking about. You know, so I'm seeing how he's using this for his favor right now. Do you have anybody else in the field that you like? Not really. Not really. And that's been tough, you know. And um, I, I think the last time I, I was on the show, I said about Chris Christie, but he's, what, polling at 2%. So yeah. I think right now, you know, the, no one's really breaking through. Well, a lot of your Democratic friends on the other side say, out of 350 million people in this country, we can't do better than Joe Biden. And I think the president, it's, it's mixed. We'll see where people are a year from now. Um, as an attorney, you read that indictment. What did you think? It's just scary. It's scary to think that we came that close. And I want to give credit to Mike Pence, who is a Republican. Uh, and people say, well, you know, he's just doing his job. Well, when you're doing your job when not everyone else is, that's a big deal. And it made a big difference. And, you know, I remember something um, during the, uh, right after the election. I remember seeing it on CNN. They said, well, he's, uh, he's going to concede probably on Friday. He's waiting for a court case. I said, this guy's never going to concede. And he never did. And quite frankly, but for the courage of people like the speaker, 
speaker, I think, in Arizona. Uh, some some folks on uh, on election boards in, in Michigan. Um, the uh, vice president uh, Pence. I mean, who knows what would have happened? And so it's scary. And, and they the got idea, threats. And Death ab threats. Absolutely. And the idea and the idea that not more people are speaking out against it, not more Republicans. That's what we need. The founders of this country uh, anticipated someone like Donald Trump, but they didn't anticipate that there would be a party that would condone it or accept it or be silent about it. He has such a grip on the Republican base and the Republican Party. I don't foresee this hurting him in the primary, but in the general election. So first off, we have to consider these are serious charges, very serious charges. Then how much he's going to get tied up in court during that general election cycle, you know, if he wins the primary. And then also I'm looking at it from the key voting groups that have stopped him and the Republicans from getting gains since 2018, suburban women, independent voters, Gen Zers, they're they're, I mean, they probably don't already like Trump, but this is going to give them even more of a reason to walk over broken glass to go to the polls in 2024. Okay, folks, that is it. It's a quick 30 minutes. Thank you for joining us. Angel, good to see you back. All your world travels. And uh, <laughs> Lisa and Raymond, thank you. And, uh, folks, uh, a month left of primary day. We will have all the latest in CD1 and anything else that breaks. We hope you join us back here next week as a lively experiment continues. Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.